Hello and welcome to Sounds Like a Plan, a podcast all about how the music world is taking action in our climate crisis. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Cochran, a journalist and podcaster. And I'm Faye Milton, co-founder of Music Declares Emergency and drummer in the band Savages. This time on the podcast, you join us in the middle of a momentous week for sustainability and the music industry. Lots of action, pledges and events to discuss. Uh, We're also talking education and strategies with our guest, Chiara Badiali from Julie's Bicycle, a not-for-profit organisation who help the creative industries understand their environmental impact, but most importantly, give them guidance on how to make positive changes. And as always, we'll leave you with some recommendations. So let's get into the podcast. Faye, we find you a couple of days into a very, very busy week of climate action. You've been working on this stuff for months now. So apart from probably feeling completely exhausted, how are you doing? Brilliant. I mean, yes, it's been quite a long time coming. We launched the Turn Up the Volume week this week, 19th of April 2021. And it's been amazing. Basically, it's been a long time coming. We've done loads and loads of work leading up to this point. And I think the point of the week was to just bring the music industry together, to bring fans together, audiences together across the whole of the musical spectrum to Mm. discuss climate change and really to share like a a single message. Ironically, we have two hashtags, (laughs) turn up the volume and no music on a dead planet. And yesterday the music industry announced some really, really ambitious targets for um, carbon neutral and uh, sustainability um, in all different sectors. And throughout the week, we've just got basically the most bonkers range of musicians getting involved from uh, classical music. We've got reggae dancehall we've got grime we've got indie we've got rock and we've got metal we've got artists from so many different genres we tried to do the whole music industry which is why we've all been pulling our hair out a little bit trying to make (laughs) it work but um the main thing is is that we've there's loads and loads of research going on saying that everyone basically wants action on climate now it's not this kind of niche thing Mm. that some wackos want somewhere it's everybody so the best way we can represent that in music is just by having the same message said by a grime artist as by a classical music violin virtuoso or the drummer of a metal band or like and all of the audiences that those people touch because ultimately we all love music and we all want to live (laughs) <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, i mean and, and that's basically what this podcast is all about as well yeah. because uh, music having the influence as well because outside of your immediate friends and family the people that uh we all listen to are our favorite entertainers or our favorite athletes people that we are inspired by so it does have huge influence just going back to one thing you just said there easier said than done to basically pull together people from across the music spectrum it's very different reaching out to get somebody involved in the classical world uh, and somebody involved in the metal world or the grime world how have you found that experience of basically trying to get all those disparate people involved in one campaign well greg i wouldn't call them disparate people but um... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> disparate sounds sorry yeah. disparate sounds um it's been a lot of work basically but it's also 
you know, music's music. I've always just kind mm. of felt a bit pukey about genre names anyway, because everything crosses over, especially now people just listen to everything. And mm. so there are loads of crossovers. But I think with our original launch with Music Declares, all of our working group are music industry musicians. So we've all got loads of contacts to some extent, but we rinsed all our contacts in the first round. This is like the difficult second <laughs> album, basically, mm. in, in campaign terms. <laughs> because this time we had to reach beyond our contacts to basically other people's contacts and just get out of our little bubble, which kind of what the whole thing is about, really, is is getting out, ha having conversations that don't just come back in at you from the people who already are thinking the same thing. It's about sort of mm. getting into different spaces. So... Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of work, but some amazing people have come on board to really help reach different communities. So it's, yeah, it's going really well. Yeah. So there is a whole range of things happening. I urge everybody to go and check out the Music Declares emergency socials, which are, Faye, remind me. At Music Declares. It's at Music Declares on Instagram and Twitter. Yep, that's where you'll find the full list of activity going on. There are Q&As, there are workshops, talks, live stream stuff, like all sorts of things happening um, that people can get involved with. There's obviously been a few things already, but plenty more happening this week. Is there anything that you want to particularly point out or anything that you're getting involved with this week that you want people to head towards and check out well yeah definitely there is um we have a worldwide fm show which is on thursday at 12 p.m and that's earth day as well so it's an earth day based show and there's an amazing set of artists who have got together collaborated created their own work submitted work that they've already created around climate and it's so it's one of those magical things where I was recommended people and things just came together and it's just this incredible mix of music. There's an artist called uh, Bloom, who's a contemporary classical musician, but also an indie musician creating really interesting stuff. There's Zena Edwards and Pops Mohammed who are getting together to create a whole new piece of music for this radio show. Um, yeah, Kings on a Quest, who is a new artist I've just found out about and mm -hmm. he is incredible. I've never heard music like it. It's super like lo-fi, but jazzy and like a amazing sound. So it's, yeah, super fresh um, for Worldwide FM. I like that. Come to Sounds Like a Plan for uh, for, for, for climate <laughs> in interest and leave with new music tips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and then on Friday night, Joe Goddard from Hot Chip is doing a live stream for us. That's going to be mm -hmm. on our socials at Music Declares Instagram. Yeah, it'll be an Insta live. Um, and we'll be on there sort of chatting in the chat, disturbing mm -hmm. the music with uh, any questions. <laughs> if people want to come on, ask questions, just have a casual talk about any issues and thoughts because we're just here to talk about stuff basically so he'll be playing some music we'll be doing that and mm -hmm. yeah um special amazing event happening on saturday that's secret and i can't say anything about whoa okay whoa. yeah <laughs> that one's staying under wraps we'll be able to talk about that one next week then. yeah excellent oh well i mean it's very much like not too late for people to get involved and also if you're if you are streaming this episode of the podcast like down the line sometime in the future weeks or months in advance it's still not too late to be involved like it's not just a week of action sure this is all about raising awareness but do go back check out some of that stuff that's already going to be out there do get involved do follow music declares to, to see all of this stuff and see that your favorite artists and your favorite record labels or 
just people you've heard of maybe in the music world see if they're getting involved with climate action and hopefully you'll be inspired or, or maybe learn some stuff from uh, all of this activity yeah absolutely we're, we're obviously like the panels etc everything we'll be hosting we'll, you can find out where on our socials we've got a, a really nice link tree that i've set up so you can hit Excellent. all the links there yeah Good, good, good. Um, before we move on, I just want to say thanks to some people that have got in touch since the last episode of the podcast. We had Ed O'Brien from Radiohead. It was so, so nice to, to hear from you. Uh, the range of messages that we received were brilliant. People were listening to the podcast as they were cooking their dinner, just discovered us uh, right through to those who are already involved in climate action, who who love hearing more about the subject and other people that were just completely falling about laughing or completely horrified by Ed O'Brien's impression of Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> I think we were a bit of both, um, but as accurate as it was. But um, yeah, please do keep all of your contact or your messages coming we, we love to hear from you we are sounds like a plan podcast on instagram and also sounds like a plan podcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us via email um as we already just mentioned there this week is a huge week for climate action it is earth day on thursday the 22nd of april so there will be lots and lots of big announcements uh, in the broader kind of climate industry um so we'll be talking about those in the coming weeks no doubt couple of things i just wanted to mention just a bit a couple of things of like climate news that i wanted to mention really quickly Faye, before we get into this week's guest mm. one of the things was um there was a greta thunberg documentary on the bbc just recently um and afterwards or, or maybe part of that she was talking about this year's cop 26 um, and whether that should go ahead or not because of covid and, and obviously the sort of safety implications around that um taking sort of Greta out of the equation I just wanted to talk about COP26 which is the the big UN event in November in Glasgow which is where all the world leaders come together um, to report back on the promises that they've made around climate action and also develop um, new policies around that stuff given that it's already been postponed once in 2020 because of the pandemic how important do you feel that it is that it goes ahead this year without another delay? Well, it's a bit like saying how important is it to have a future on the planet? Like, it's pretty important. Mm. Um, and I, I don't really say that lightly. It's it's really like time is of the essence. We should have been making these changes to, you know, fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera, energy 30 years ago. We're making them with like just at the last minute and, and every year, every month is really important. And yeah, I can't see a reason why they shouldn't go ahead. I mean, if you can go ahead with Reading and Leeds Festival, if you can go ahead with everything that's planning to be opened up, then mm. let's, you know, this is really important. If you can keep hospitals mm. open, which you obviously can, because it's really important for people's health, you should keep COP26 open because it's really important for people's health. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. It's, you know, it's life or death. So um, mm. yeah, I mean, if they want to do it on Zoom, sure. <laughs> do you think it do you think it would work like that because i mean uh, you know i think um having kind of looked you know looked at obviously the negotiations that happened in paris in 2015 which obviously get referenced loads of, mm. uh, as being you know the the most um significant meeting of world leaders to, to create climate policy there's ever been really do you think it's important that people need to physically be in a room to apply that pressure or do you think it could take place as a sort of hybrid virtual physical edition and still work Greg, I don't know if I've got any insights into that. <laughs> mm. Report but, back to me, please, babe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's we've all spent the whole year on Zoom meetings. They can actually be mm. quite productive. I mean, I'm not, mm. you know, it's fine. But it's it's difficult to know whether that um, 
those particular energies that people have, those people who really can create change by making people feel positive and whipped up and like, we can do this. Can that happen over Zoom? Mm. Questionable I, or whatever other streaming platforms are available. They'd have a better chance on Zoom than Google Meet discuss. <laughs> <laughs> and a better chance on Google Meet than no than no meeting at all. So like let's <laughs> let's hear it for all of the digital streaming platforms that we've been using to meet. Um one other thing that I just wanted to flag which I thought was really interesting in the context of music was some news this week that came out of uh, France which was that the French National Assembly have voted to ban any domestic flights where you could get to a destination um, within the country via train in less than two and a half hours, which I think is really interesting. That's we've great. Been talking about, <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about touring so much about, and, and particularly um, we will do on, on future episodes because we're still early, but the travel between destinations, particularly from artists and things like that, you know, if you're touring Europe, you might take short hop flights um, betwe between different destinations. And really, really interesting to see that um, the French have taken that action to say, where there's an option to take a train, where it's a really short flight, you should definitely do that. So yeah, rather than kind of, you know, putting it out there for discussion, I just thought I'd, mm. I wanted to bring that up for, for listeners and, and, and for us just to say that's a really, really interesting development, I think. I think possibly, certainly that doesn't exist in the UK at the moment, don't know if it does elsewhere, but I saw that and thought it was interesting. Yeah, I used to take the train up to Edinburgh quite a lot for love and um, mm -hmm. it's it's just quicker on a train than it is to fly it's like mm. psychologically it's different because the train's like five hours or something but flying with all the kerfuffle plus you always spend loads of money at the airport so mm. train all the way excellent i love the word kerfuffle by the way <laughs> um, <laughs> then we should get more kerfuffle into our climate chat yeah. um shall we turn our attention to this week's guest yes fantastic okay so a strong thing that's come through our episode so far is that of questions uh, and a lot of people throughout the music industry are ready to be proactive uh, they've got lots of energy and they've got lots of intention when it comes to uh, sustainability and climate action but maybe the practical knowledge isn't there and and it's a, a point that's really really important to make we've all been at that point where we're just learning more it's mm. the first day on the job almost of, of of learning more about the climate so this episode is really almost not f exclusively for those people because we're all somewhere on that that register of of, of 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 knowledge but um the climate crisis is enormous and it reaches into every corner of our domestic and professional lives pretty much and sustainability is a huge area too and it can feel quite an isolating and lonely place when you don't know an awful lot about it I thought it was interesting hearing from Ed O'Brien from Radiohead last time out that even he and Radiohead, a band sort of known for being engaged with green issues, are still very much at the point 15 years later where they're just asking a lot of questions, openly admitting that they're really just trying to figure things out. And, and along with that, still feeling a lot of guilt. That's relevant because Julie's Bicycle are an organisation, a not-for-profit charity who specialise in this stuff. Um, I'll introduce our guest in a second, but... Faye, you've had a long-term relationship with them and the work that they do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Music Declares Emergency and Julie's Bicycle are partners, basically. Um, mm -hmm. When we were thinking of setting up, they were also thinking of setting up exactly the same thing, more or less. So we, I remember we had a meeting at pret a in like King's Cross or somewhere, sitting outside <laughs> on the tables back in the day when you could, you know, see people in real life. And mm. it was... Um, we just realized we had completely shared goals, but completely different areas of expertise. So they're absolute experts 
in how to green the creative industries. They've been doing this work for 13 years and just nailing it basically. And they've done so much research, so much sort of case studies working with people that they had all of that knowledge. We're like music industry lot. So we've got loads of contact with loads of sort of energy to do campaigns and, and sort of that in the music industry, you have to, you're constantly doing releases and social media and all of this stuff that is really useful for campaigning as well. So yeah, we basically worked on the declaration together, launched together and Kiara is part of our working group. So I have spent many, many hours on Zoom with Kiara. I keep mentioning <laughs> yeah. Zoom today. It's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Other, other services are available. Other services <laughs> are available. Um, just quickly, I, I first heard about um, Julie's Bicycle via a conversation with the artist Caribou because he's really Caribou, interested yeah. and engaged with sustainability. And he'd worked with Julie's Bicycle to basically figure out more about his own environmental impact and, and his carbon footprint, a bit like how um, Ed O'Brien was talking about in, in, uh, in, in our second episode and, and how they'd basically supplied him with some actionable practical stuff that he could mm. almost that he could take away and implement really fine detail stuff down to how many hotel rooms that he and his band would book after doing a gig in Portugal mm. or something um, but this is the sort of nitty-gritty that they supply but um Kiara talks about that loads more in this conversation so let's get into it let's hear from Kiara a brilliant climate communicator this is Kiara from Julie's Bicycle on Sounds Like a Plan. Kiara, welcome to Sounds Like a Plan. We are going to be speaking to people in the music community who are getting proactive around their own climate strategy, whether that's artists thinking about their touring or record labels or activists, a whole range of different people. But as we all know, it's difficult to know how to do something if you don't understand it, which is where people like Julie's Bicycle um, and the organisation that you work for come in. They they sort of help people understand, don't they? So can you tell us a little bit about the history of how you've worked with musicians and organisations and different people across the music world? So Julie's Bicycle really, really came about because it felt like there was this big gap of knowledge. Um, in around 2007, you know, climate change started to softly be on the agenda a bit more. Uh, Al Gore had put out An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, the music industry was coming together to put on the live earth shows as like the global series of gigs that would solve climate change. And there was a recognition alongside that, that I think the, the industry sort of said, oh, wow, maybe we can't just put artists out there on stage to wag their fingers at people, you know, saying you need to consume less. Uh, actually, this goes a lot deeper than that. We also have to change the way that we work as an industry, but we have no idea what to do and we don't know where to start. So Julie's Bicycle came out of this idea of like, how do you bring climate science and the knowledge that exists around how you manage and reduce environmental impact and like where we have to get to and how do you bring that together with people from the music industry because a lot of the time it feels like those two things aren't really talking to each other and you have to adapt the knowledge of one so that it makes sense to the other and it's translated into like okay what does that actually mean for me in my day-to-day -day job and that's still how we work really it's it's all about bringing people together around shared issues and questions and sort of helping uh, find the answers to that so that you go, okay, these are the things that you should be going off to do. And then taking that back as well to like people in government, to policymakers to say, you know, these are the barriers, this is what's not working um, and getting everyone to hopefully sort of get real about this massive crisis that we're in the middle of. Yeah. 
and I definitely consider myself a bit of a, a, a lay person in terms of like I'm 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 very much learning to understand like the issue and the sort of types of action that people can take and that's like part of why we're doing this to have those conversations but can you break it down for me a little bit more if an artist comes to you and they say I'd like to better understand how my day-to-day career is contributing to the climate problem so what do you do then how do you start and where do you go from there some of it is is as you say is is just giving people a, a grounding of information so Fundamentally, climate change comes down to like how we use energy and how we use land. And if you translate that into the music industry, we use energy in venues, we use energy at festivals, we use energy to get people from place to place uh, and their stuff from place to place. And in terms of the land, we are kind of implicated in that because because of the stuff that we use. So like the food that we serve, um, the stuff that gets used to build our sets. And so if you're speaking to an artist, it's sort of figuring out, okay, how ambitious do you want to be? And can you be? And trying to push that a bit further. Um, It's looking at what's in your direct control, what decisions are being made in your team. So if you're an A-star, A-list artist, there's gonna be a lot more stuff that's in your control and that you can push for. If you're someone who's just starting out, you're probably going to have a bit less freedom and then it becomes much more about asking people and kind of bringing it up in conversation so that you show that, you know, there has been this real silence around climate change and people feel really isolated and alone and like no one else really gives a shit and this whole industry machine is there buzzing away. And within that industry machine, there's lots and lots of people who are there kind of going, oh my God, how do I change this? What 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 do I do next? And so helping to make those conversations flow a bit more easily and, 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 you know, bring that to the surface, that that energy that is there. Yeah. Can you give us an example of a campaign that you might have worked on with um, an artist or organisation or a venue or somewhere where you've sort of helped them go from what you've just described from, from a, maybe a sort of limited knowledge base to somewhere that's got like or someone or, or some people who've now got a new strategy in place. They've, they've put a new framework in, they're working to a different set of practices. Yeah, I, I think one of uh, one really great example is that when we, one of the first pieces of work we did was was trying to look at the carbon footprint of the UK music industry as a whole. You know, a huge, we didn't. Huge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I, I, I don't Not know little. that anyone. Yeah, I, I don't know that anyone really knew what they were getting themselves in for. It was kind of you know calling people about their electricity bills and they were like Mm. what do you mean I don't have those anymore I chuck them away and it's like what do you mean (laughs) you chuck them away (laughs) (laughs) um, but we you know but from that we we did manage to paint a picture again with the help of of some really dedicated people who who did make those sort of terrorizing calls going give us the information because we Mm. want to put this out there and from that it was you know, you get some priority areas. So one was around audience travel to festivals. So we then went off and also we worked with a few festival providers to do a lot of audience surveys, like starting to break down, okay, how are people getting to event sites? You know, what are the barriers to them getting on a coach or using train travel or car sharing more? And then through that sort of getting people to put in place more and more initiatives and incentives, whether that's, you know, higher car parking charges, whether it's bundled coach tickets, or another example, this was a, a sort of smaller hotspot in the grand scheme of music industry emissions, but still really relevant for this part. And that was um, the energy use on festival sites. So the diesel that goes into generators, basically. Again, 
it was sort of there and we worked with a few festivals to do some detailed monitoring of the generators. And you find that actually so much fuel is being wasted because everyone's adding a safety margin because the last thing you want to happen is to have a power cut in the middle of the event. Yeah, the pyramid stage goes down. (laughs) (laughs) But when everyone's adding a safety margin, you have these generators that are like two, three, four times the size they need to be. And it's super, super Mm. wasteful. And so we worked together with Chris Johnson, who is one of the directors of Shambhala Festival. And we brought together what was originally called the Power Providers Forum, uh, which we then renamed into Powerful Thinking. But it was kind of putting that information out there to festivals and saying, look, start getting a grip on this. Get better about, you know, monitoring your generator loads, about planning better. And that has spiraled, like powerful thinking has now been going for like eight, nine years. The resources and research we've done have been translated into like Dutch and Catalan, um, yeah, various other places. And it's it's started a really different conversation about how we power outdoor events. And now we're in the stage where we're in the middle of sort of the next big step, which is how do we actually get off generators and onto battery power or connect our festivals to the grid? And that's been a that's been a very long journey. And I think, you know, you still speak to organizers sometimes now who are like quite new to this, but at the front end that that conversation has really, really shifted. Wow. Yeah. And how how far off do you think we are from that being a possibility? It depends on the scale. I mean, you can you can do a lot now with with battery power that sort of uh, emerged on the market, especially in recent years. I mean, even years and years and years ago, there there were some small events like Croissant Neuf that really didn't go for generator power. And and today, I think you can put on a, a decent size event mainly using battery, or again, if you're lucky enough to have that mains grid connection um, to mm. plug into putting quite a lot on that. How far off are we for the whole industry to shift? That's going to depend on whether the government basically forces the construction industry to change. Mm. Um, Because the events industry can do so much, but then for some of these technologies to scale up and get cheaper, you have to depend on the big boys as well. So when you say construction industry, is that because the construction industry is probably the main use of generators over the festival industry, for example? Pretty much, yeah. If you right. think about all the building sites that have generators mm. running on them, um, and I yeah, literally there's never co- crossed my mind of how they power <laughs> building sites before. But now you mention it, you'd yeah. probably need a bit of power. <laughs> uh, so that, that's one area of crossover. It's not just construction site. There's also like backup power and, and other bits mm. and pieces. But yeah, I mean, the festival and event sector is one of the users of kind of generator fuel power. But a, a transition would probably look like parts of the festival transitioning and sort of doing it rather than it's the whole festival goes to green energy in one go that that would be probably too much of a leap I'd imagine yeah it depends on the size of the festival again Mm. I mean you can now you can power stages I think a thousand or two thousand people some people are offering packages now um but it again it, it depends on the the specific festival but that that sort of mix that hybrid approach is happening already and sometimes it's it's just focusing on like the smaller applications so with outdoor events, there's a lot of work happening on like sporting events so that instead of having a generator, you know, at the finish line powering the lights, why wouldn't you just have a battery? Because it's not masses of, of power that are needed there. And it helps with air pollution as well. Like we're we're putting all these generators in city centres for urban festivals when we already have an air pollution epidemic. Mm. 
A question I've been itching to ask, because we've spoken to lots of people about the question of touring. It's the one thing that seems to sort of come up time and time again, obviously, when we're talking about music and the climate crisis. And I'm interested to know, like you mentioned there about in terms of um, the emissions of, of, of big events. So, you know, say like a big outdoor stadium concert or, or, or festival or something is actually the future or the, maybe the short term. Obviously, the, the best solution is that touring kind of pauses in terms of big international emissions. If you're flying all around the world and taking lots of kind of like um, carbon heavy flights and things like that. But if you if you were take, to take an example of like an artist that was going to play a show in the UK, would it actually be more beneficial to play lots of small shows where say a solo artist or a small band and their crew traveled around the UK to play to people where they are rather than basically announce one massive show say in the cent- in the middle of the country where 50 60,000 people travel to to you know quite a lot of them by car obviously to actually attend yeah, it, with those calculations, you're always making some assumptions about like, you know, how far would people actually travel to see the big central show? But overall, yeah, audience travel really is kind of the biggest source of impact for most of our shows. I think there's a, there is a bit of a reckoning that has to happen here because travel is on a global scale is kind of a luxury emission. And what I mean by that is when We've looked at studies that sort of look at how emissions are different between different countries. When you earn more, your travel emissions go up much more. Mm. And that really is connected to earning power. So, you know, whether you can afford a car in the first place and then whether you can start affording flights. And then on top of that, once you fly, do you then fly business class? That's going to be exactly exactly. So it, it and and that is it's the most unfair sort of category of emissions in terms of you know how it's distributed worldwide. Like, I think only around one in ten people fly at all across the world in a given year. Most kind of climate scenarios, you know, acknowledge flying cannot keep growing at the rate that it has grown. We, we don't have that level of carbon budget left to us. And at the moment, although a lot of airplane manufacturers are really starting to step up and go, ah, shit, you know, we need to look into synthetic fuels and we have to electrify our planes. Mm. That timeline is, is quite long. So between now and then, I think there is a question like whether we can scale down the number of flights that we take as an industry because we are taking a lot more than the average person mm. in the world. And that's not just connected to touring. I think that's connected to the way the whole industry works with the way that we treat business travel, where at least before the pandemic, it was like, yeah, it's fine. I'll take a plane and I'll go see this gig and then I'll fly home the next morning because like, I'm the agent or I'm the manager and stuff like that. Or, or you know, the showcase festivals that have popped up all over Europe where... I know in the last few years, it's kind of, I'm turning down a lot of invitations to come and speak about the climate crisis. And they're like, yeah, you know, it's not paid, but we'll we'll pay your travel expenses. Like you can come to, you know, you can come to Italy, you can come to Germany for a day. And I'm like, why would I get on a plane to do a single panel to talk mm. about how bad the climate crisis is? <laughs> this is not tenable somehow. So there is a little bit of a reset here that has to happen just about the, ease of flying that we've developed that means yes we have to look at routing we should be starting to look at one-off gigs where we fly a whole crew out to do a single night and get smarter about that 
uh, on the road, it does mean starting to think about how much stuff do we actually want to bring with us? Should we be bringing mm. 20 trucks of stuff and people with us? Can we bring that down? Maybe we still need five, but do we really need 20? Like there, mm. there is so, there's so much low hanging fruit, I think, at the moment that not doing anything is just not excusable. Yeah. And I, I think for, for listeners who aren't aware of this, lots of large venues and sort of arenas, they don't, they're complete blank canvases. So everything that you see, all of the lights, all of the PA system, the staging, it's all brought in and that can be taken from city to city. Whereas, you know, you could just have standard equipment that people could just add their extra touches to in, in certain ways. It is complicated because... There is a reason why it's done like that because everyone wants a different stage set up and maybe the arena is going to be used for football the next day. And, you know, there's there's reasons why it happens. But the way I was thinking about it when you're saying it is that travel is necessary. And I think as we've seen over the last year or so, it's rubbish not having live shows and not having touring musicians and all of this stuff. We miss it greatly. But there's a certain amount of travel and haulage that, is necessary and then I guess there's a certain amount that can be seen as waste like wastage so I, I always point this out and I feel really bad because I love all music managers but music managers flying out to Australia and South America and New York to see shows when they could probably see the show that happened in Leeds <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like <laughs> there is a there is a bit of a culture around wasteful travel that isn't necessary that is a probably a mindset thing as well it is a mindset thing and and like a a weird cultural shift because I come from a family of I mean my mom and my dad both work in the airline industry like my mom was a a stewardess for 10-20 years Uh, my dad has worked for airlines he's run airlines um family dinners must be interesting (laughs) (laughs) yeah they they really are but it's that huge cultural shift where like a few decades ago you know that opening up of international travel was like the most exciting thing it was like oh my god this is going to bring us closer Mm. together you know it's the world suddenly is small we all get to learn so much about different cultures like maybe this is an opening to a much better world And now it's sort of this reckoning of this is maybe not so good, but that is a really quick shift. And I think a lot of people who've come into the music industry as well, they've they've done it because there is a love of adventure and that spirit of like, oh my God, I want to get out there. I want to meet as many people as possible. And I think sometimes that's why this climate conversation is so hard because you do feel like the party pooper coming in and being like, Mm. "Uh, you know, this is great, but have you kind of thought about the human cost of the flights that you take like it's a massive and it's not just the music industry I mean this is happening all over the place but that's where we're at it's this big Mm. reckoning of Mm. yeah in in some ways it's just gone too far and it it could do of being reined in a bit I think there's this an expectation of what what is said yes to and having toured for a long time what what is said yes to is can you do a show in Moscow this day and two days later can you be in New York and three days later can you be in Japan and those are things that I haven't done that exact routing but that's a sort of condenser of a, a real routing that I did at what point do people say no I think that's the hard part of saying because it's a financial decision it's you want to do the shows you want to play in Japan it's really exciting it's all of these things but there's an expectation that 
it's possible to do those things. Whereas actually as a band for your well-being, when you're spending all of your time in airports and on flights, it's not necessarily that great overall as a, as a life really, or as a creatively, or there's all sorts of different factors that um, sort of weigh into this as well, I think of what do we do as an industry? And we've obviously got a big pause to think about it at the moment. <laughs> And that's the thing. I mean, it, what coronavirus has done is sort of it's exposed some of these fragilities as well in the whole business model of, of how artists make a living. And it's like if you can't send someone on a plane to do a show at the other end of the world, then they're not eating tomorrow. Mm. So and that shift away from that is it's going to be tough. We don't fully know what it looks like, but we have to start trying and we have to have everyone kind of thinking about it and yeah maybe you start saying no maybe you know it's just about bringing that into the thinking and into the planning and I guess what worries me is sort of the travel and the, the touring model and the paradigm shift that's needed around that is actually the most difficult bit but we're not even doing the easy stuff at the moment like the easy stuff is making sure our venues and our concert halls are powered by renewable electricity Basic. like there's almost nowhere in the world where that's not possible and we're still fighting for it mm. that's frustrating <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I guess like, and that's sometimes what we talk about with artists as well. It's like, if you are not ready or you're not in a position to change the touring bit, push for the change like that we know is possible. So how do we get more serious about like at the booking stage when those tours are being booked, asking the venues like, are you powered by renewable electricity? Do you have a plan for your impact? Like, how well connected to public transport are you? Have you looked at, if you're an arena in the middle of nowhere, like, do you have a shuttle scheme that's going to mm. get people to the closest urban centre at the very least? Like, and those are the things that, again, you start making those shifts on the ground where we have really clear answers of what needs to happen. Yeah. And I guess if artists start asking those questions and making sure it's kind of included in their negotiations, I suppose, like when it comes to agreeing to do something, then it pushes that conversation forward. And, and those venues and, and those people that run those those organisations, they feel compelled because they, they don't want to be put in a position where they're saying, oh, no, we don't have those things. You're sort of forcing the issue, aren't you, by doing that? Yeah. And, and you have to front it. It's like by the time the show is booked, you're probably a step too late. Like it has mm. to be at the point the agent's having the conversation, it's like you probably ask sort of three questions and then you present it back to artists and artist management along with like on this date, you know, we've had three offers and also by the way, like this is how they stack up against each other in terms of environmental impact. Mm. Um, but that means sort of a, a whole other level of, I, I guess, education to be built like among agents, among management as well of like these are the things that matter and like, being able to read between the lines sometimes of the bullshit or like following up <laughs> the questions of, you know, you've said you're green, but can you break down what that actually means? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, there could be a mindset as well, a bit like in food, you have like slow food as opposed to fast food. And you could have, in a sense, slow touring, which could actually be really enjoyable where you don't zigzag around the world in this sort of chaotic, mad be on cocaine vibe which it feels like which is draining and it's incredibly expensive as well but if you toured in a sort of 
more organized, slow, <laughs> kind of just a, a direction that made sense. Maybe if you're doing a world tour, just go around the world once, but like get all the places <laughs> mm, mm. rather than back and forth the whole time. Yeah, and I guess it's learning like from other parts of the arts, like in visual arts, you already have a lot of this idea of artist residencies or like an artist in resident who stays in a city for a few weeks, sometimes even months at a time, like really getting to grips with either something they're making or an issue. And I guess what excites me there is like examples of where those artists and residents have been linked as well to environmental issues. Like I think it was like the Texas Water Board or something had an artist and mm. residence to work on like the issues of flooding or like how water was managed in the city. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's a totally different mindset from like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to play to a few hundred people or a few thousand people. But it I guess it's a different approach and it's not going to suit every kind of musician there is. But it might create actually a whole new opportunity for, say, people whose careers have been hampered because they have huge stage fright or like who really, really suffer from the constant travel. And actually you're you're shifting business models to create a different way of working that's going to open doors for a whole new group of people and artists. Yeah, and might be much more creatively nurturing as well when you actually get to spend time in a city or a place. And with Savages, we did, I think it was eight shows in New York over a month. And you really just become part of, what's the word? Like you kind of reflect off it creatively and you get some input. I think when you're, you're all you see is the backstage room in the airport lounge, where's the creative input? <laughs> what are you finding <laughs> out really? It's, it's very thin on the ground. So yeah, there, there's a lot of, reasons why this could be sort of a much more enjoyable way of touring as well Mm. and I guess what we're talking about here is like creative solutions like you've both mentioned it there uh, going back a little bit further in the conversation in terms of talking about a venue and it being a blank canvas um, and maybe thinking about the type of things that an artist is bringing to a show uh, and how that can be changed and and Faye yeah like you're just speaking there like is there a different way of touring and how does that relate to the art that you're creating and I suppose I'm interested to know from both of you really like are we in a unique position in the in the music world like we work well within confines with challenges our job is to be creative to come up with creative solutions so in that way who better to rise to this challenge is that what you both believe totally like it's kind of it's one of the driving forces behind Judy's bicycle like some of the most resourceful people that I know are people who work in the music industry. Like the stuff that you see people do with no resource and a roll of gaffer tape and a whole lot of hope and like goodwill. <laughs> but it's incredible. So like if we manage to apply that resourcefulness and that creativity to the climate challenge, like the stuff that we could come up with mm. is amazing. And how have you seen the types of conversation change in public from artists over the time that you've been working with the music community have you seen people growing confidence in terms of speaking publicly about their passion for the subject do you think that's it's happening more and more now and is that because they're working with organizations like julie's bicycle to, to understand more to feel more comfortable to be able to bring it up in an interview or 
something like that do you know what i mean it feels it feels like maybe these conversations have been happening for quite a while privately and people have been maybe a little bit fearful a bit scared of either the criticism or not feeling like they can speak publicly because they don't 100 percent know the subject do you, but so have you seen the the conversation steadily grow and is that something that's still happening do you think yeah, I mean, massively. I think both from artists and, and also people who work in in the industry, um, there always is and still is a fear of like, if I go out there and I say something, it opens me up to people pointing out all of the stuff that I'm not doing. And I guess part of my job is trying to push people through that because if you're sat there in silence, like you're not even part of the conversation and there's loads of other people who are more than happy to be part of that conversation and probably steer it in a very different direction. So if you're silent, like you're not helping push that needle to where it needs to go. I think it is starting to shift, but I think uh, it needs to shift a lot more. I think there is still a lot of fear and some of it, you know, rightly so as well. I think one of the things that is still difficult is that when you speak out now as an artist like and Faye it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on Mm. this but like it's really hard to speak out and then not immediately become like ah they might be a climate activist and like it opens the door like that's just what you become Mm. it's really hard to speak out in public and then not have that become like part of your persona or like how the world sees you and that is something we have to get over yeah, I mean, two things here. Well, one is when we started Savages, it was we just couldn't speak about feminism or being women because that becomes who you are. And that's you're so pigeonholed so quickly. And it's it's very similar with I guess there's a, a sense that it's similar with the climate issues. And then you're always going to be the one who's asked about it. And maybe you just don't feel like it all the time. You want to talk about other things. I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to have with Music Declares Emergency get a whole ton of artists together and do it all together and be like as an industry as musicians we're doing this and it's not one person singled out it's this is what people are thinking now so it's more of a you know safety in numbers all of the research now is just saying that everyone pretty much everyone's worried about climate as many people as you could imagine could possibly have the capacity to be worried about climate change are and that's in the UK and internationally so that goes for artists, probably a higher percentage of artists are because they're thinking about travel and thinking about all of these things. Hopefully over the next year or so, that feeling of being put out on a limb will change as it really feels like this is the mainstream and you're going to be the odd one out if you're not worried about climate ultimately. <laughs> because, you know, that's, it, it really is a, a mainstream issue now. I think that's fascinating and brilliantly put. I do. I, I do hope there's a kind of like a normalisation so that it isn't that's like a burden that individuals who've mm. taken the, the step to speak about it publicly just have to hold. And instead, like you say, safety in numbers. We've talked about some of the sort of maybe more straightforward solutions that organisations and venues and artists can take, you know, for example, being powered by renewable energy. But I'm interested, is, is there anything like radical that you've come across or things that you see in the sort of short-term future that you think maybe don't feel that graspable right now, but sort of paint the picture of a more like a greener and, and more an exciting future. Like, is it is there like 
things happening in the music industry you think you know what in a few years time it could look like this if if this piece of technology gets to sort of maturity or if we can take action in this sort of way like i, I guess like what are some of the more radical and exciting things that you think are down the line i mean in terms of technology especially that there's been so many great examples especially in festival world because when you when you pull together a festival you're you're kind of creating a mini city and it has to, you know, it has to provide food, it has to provide sanitation, you have to put power and you have to manage the waste. And that actually opens up all kinds of exciting possibilities around sort of road testing new technologies. Um, and I think probably the, the country that's leading on that is the Netherlands. Um, for example, there's one festival that takes place on an island in Vleeland, Um into the great wide open. It's amazing, that festival. Yeah, and they have this thing called Lab Leland. And through that, they're basically using the festival to start shifting the energy and the waste and the transport infrastructure on the island. So like from the little things like installing public water refill points, but now also like really shifting like how waste is managed, including more composting that actually happens on the island year through. I think zero carbon transport of supplies from the mainland using like sailing vessels instead of the diesel powered boat that they would have usually used. So you, you start having these parallels. Um, and there's another like different festivals are trying out like new technologies of processing and filtering piss and like getting all the, the nutrients back out. And so you've got like purified water that comes out one end and all the nutrients somewhere else so that you can reuse them um mm. but you know it's, it's sort of a way to engage people to <laughs> yeah it's like Roskilde festival one year so they collected all the urine on site they turned it into fertilizer which they then fertilized some local barley fields with and then i think two years later they served pisner uh, as they called it on the festival site but it's it's like all these processes of you know how can we stop wasting so many resources how do we start creating these circular systems as they're called mm. where we mm. don't lose stuff there was a collaboration as well between a, a festival promoter and the dutch red cross to test like mobile renewable energy installations that could then be taken to sort of you know, humanitarian crisis sites, uh, refugee camps, which again are places where usually you, you go in with the diesel generators because the first thing you want to do is you want to get the power back up. And so having those alternatives of small solar panels and batteries can make a, a really big difference. Mm. I guess that, that kind of stuff excites me on the, on the technology side. On the sort of behaviour side, the, the Committee on Climate Change in the UK estimates that about two thirds of the emissions reductions we have to achieve in the UK are going to need some kind of behaviour change. And there is an opportunity here, again, in the way that we run our festivals and our events to, to nudge that. And the two big areas are food and transport. So getting people to eat less meat, fish and dairy and getting people out of their cars, basically. And so you've got festivals like Shambhala going, you know, meat and fish free to start that conversation and to push people to trying out what it's like for a weekend to not eat meat. And that's, again, those are big opportunities in those parts of the, the conversation. And then lastly, I think the big sort of next conversation that is coming, I think, is going to be around sponsorships. That has been a, a much more live conversation I think in in the more classical music world and in museums where you have companies like BP who are directly sponsoring our concert halls and our museum spaces 
But, you know, there's also a lot of different kinds of sponsorship money in the music industry, whether that is, you know, sync on advertising, whether it's sponsors at, at venues and festivals and events. And I think as people generally get a lot savvier about the climate crisis, I think we will see a lot more scrutiny and a lot more conversation about who we want to align with. And I guess that has a knock-on effect to send a message to these companies and a financial message as well. You, you need to change. If you can't PR yourself anymore by aligning with things that we love, then that's when those companies will really have to take a look at what their stock prices are going to do. And all of that kind of, that knock-on effect is it's more than just the thing that it is. It's just part of a domino effect that can really sort of help to probably these companies are not going to go away but they will switch to renewables I don't, I'm a bit out of my depth talking about the <laughs> energy companies and what they're going to do but um, I would imagine that would be the next step for them rather than to just pack their bags up and go <laughs> that is kind of what they are trying to get their heads around at the moment should we say we'll we'll sort of believe it when we see it actually happening um, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. I, I, you know it some of the power of music is that it's like it's a it's a soundtrack to adverts it is mm. uh, it's approval it's approval it it's approval. artists we love giving their approval or orchestras or venues we love giving their approval to something that actually none of us really feel that much approval for anymore mm. I've got two quick questions. The first one, would you both join me in drinking a pint of Pissner? Um, <laughs> if, it, if, it if it was offered to you, I think I would. I have to. Absolutely. Uh, and we can get there yeah. by train. Yeah, I'm sure it tastes lovely. And um, just, I suppose, a, a final one for me, speaking on kind of behalf of maybe if you're a musician listening to this and you feel like perhaps you're a bit of a beginner in this this world, you know, where should they go? Is there a YouTube channel? Is there a website? Is there something that, somebody should visit to basically make their first steps in being proactive and understanding a little bit more yeah i mean we pulled together some brilliant resources and top tips for the music declares emergency website so if you go there in the action section there's a whole sort of set of actions for artists um if you want to kind of have a go at getting your head around your carbon emissions for the first time, Julie's Bicycle has like a free carbon calculator that you can use to look at the impact of your touring. And there's loads of different sort of guides and case studies and events that you can find on the Julie's Bicycle website as well. So yeah, go to juliesbicycle.com and go to Music Declares Emergency website as well. Musicdeclares.net. <laughs> <laughs> So great to hear from Kiara there. Um, Faye, what did you make of that conversation? Yeah, so it's it's really great to have that knowledge and that expertise. And the more that we can share that, then it's, it just saves time. You know, time is of the essence in this crisis. And if that work's already done, then let's use that work. Let's not make everyone start from scratch. Definitely, yeah. There, there was a few things that I, I picked up on and, and, and took away from the conversation. I, I've been desperate to ask an expert uh, for ages about touring strategies because I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And um, in there, I was, I was asking about whether a band should, if um, audience carbon footprint is, is a real big issue, should a band actually or an artist spend more of their time and energy on going to the places where their audience is? You know, mm. should we should we see artists doing 50 date UK tours and playing provincial venues so people don't have to travel miles to see them i don't think there's necessarily a clear-cut answer on that Mm. even from kiara in there but really interesting that we are in a stage where we're thinking about these things um Mm. and yeah i'm I'm fascinated by that um also 
something that Kiara mentioned that I think is important is that when we talk about travel uh, in regards to the music industry, we're often thinking about audiences going to festivals and going to gigs and we're thinking about artists playing shows, but there's so much other stuff going on there the sort of um i think she called it the luxury travel stuff you know where mm. people m- music managers or agents are popping over to different parts of the world to have have meetings or, or previously did i do wonder whether that stuff will reduce not just for the climate reasons but also how the pandemic has changed uh, communication generally I, mm. i'm really interested to see how that will change in the next few years staying on that point obviously it's been like this way for decades in the music industry. If if you are, um, say if you're a record label and you want to sign a new artist, you you might be tempted to fly to another country, mm. uh, a different part of the world to go and watch that new artist play. I'm sure when Savages started, you had loads of interest from record labels and, and different agents and people were, were, were buzzing around you, interested in, in, in working with you. Mm. So do you think that is still going to be the case? Because do, do you feel like for some artists, it's still a really important thing that people witness them their their art in the flesh in order to to understand what they're all about yeah well i think probably a lot of that stuff happens at events like south by southwest and cmj and the great escape so those are sort Mm. of hubs for everyone to get to and watch loads of new artists and sort of kill all of those birds with one stone for a want of a better analogy so when it's in that context maybe the manager's flying to one spot to see 10, 15 different bands over a weekend is actually quite efficient rather than going to see each of those bands in their home setting. Mm. I Yeah, it's that's one of the things. It's why it's about measuring. It's about actually not just trying to perceive what what's better than something else or something else. It's about measuring. It's about the science. It's about just literally getting someone on the case doing that work because you're not going to know. There's no point us supposing um that's why you bring in experts for this stuff basically but it would be great i mean one of uh, mde one of the main things we get asked is what about touring and Mm. aside from saying actually the artist traveling to the fans is the most efficient way for that contact to be made rather than the fans traveling to the artists there isn't a really good set of answers because it's a very complex problem and very complex Mm. sort of set of issues so um there definitely is space for more work in that area and more just clearer guidelines and clearer information for people yeah mm. i was very interested in hearing about the initiative that happened at ross Gilder festival a few years ago where they were reusing festival punters urine to make beer for the following year's festival yeah. i think they called it pisner um yeah. to be honest the fact that pubs have been closed for months and months now i would take anything so i would gladly have a bite of that <laughs> but um re- really i hadn't heard about that initiative before so fascinated to hear about that and also lovely to end the conversation on a positive note with Kiara because no one is in a better position than the creative industries to act on climate. That is what we do. We come up mm. with creative ideas, come up with creative solutions. So if we can't do it, then not nobody can do it. But we've got all the do-it-yourself skills to go yeah. out there and to, to create change. So, um, yeah, fantastic to hear from Kiara. And thank, thank you to her and thank you to Julie's Bicycle for all the work that they do. I would recommend that people go and check out the Julie's Bicycle website and just bookmark that because they're updating it all the time. Their, their newsletter is really good too. It's full of loads of actionable stuff in there uh, and they make a real difference. So um, do go and check them out. They have a really good podcast as well called The Colour Green, which is... Um about how like the intersection of race and climate in the creative world yeah it's great 
Brilliant. Well, should we stay on the subject of recommendations? Um, every time on Sounds Like a Plan, Faye and I want to leave you with um, something to go away and check out. Um, as we said before, that could be something to go and read or watch or listen to or get involved with. Faye, yeah, what, what have you got? Do you want to throw forward to something? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm just going to just give a little plug again to the Worldwide FM show and the Joe Goddard live stream on our Instagram on Friday. That'll be mm-hmm. the Friday, the 23rd of April. But also... We have an amazing panel coming up on um, via Rough Trade Records. And it's basically talking about the future of records and recording with the climate crisis in mind. So there's really, really great panelists on that. There's Hannah Peel is going to be um, on that panel. Mm-hmm. And she is super into like her music's about climate. She's super into all of the topics, plus brilliant person, lovely, lovely human being. We've got Peter Quick from Ninja Tune, the Ninja Tune CEO. Mm-hmm. They've been doing loads of work in this area. Stephen from Rough Trade, who's obviously it's Rough Trade record shop and record label. Loads and loads of insights. Tristian from Worldwide FM as well. Um, and Nigel Adams from Full Time Hobby. So it's it's really interesting people who are thinking about what happens next? Can we still have vinyl? Vinyl's made of plastic. Is that still okay? Mm. What about CD cases? What about shipping? What about all of these things? Where are the problems? What are the solutions? So that's going to be super cool. And you can access it on Dice. I think the tickets are on Dice and it's called Turn Up the Volume Music in the Climate Crisis Live Q&A. Excellent. Let's get involved with that. Um, my recommendation this week is client earth's playlist for earth campaign um, i don't know if you got involved with this Faye, but the um client earth are a fascinating organization they're basically a law firm that do amazing work to try and protect the future of our planet this week what they did was to raise awareness of their work they asked a number of different artists to make playlists uh, using the hashtag uh, playlist for earth and lots of great ones did get involved Anna Kelvey, Kelly Lee Owens, Milky Chance uh, right up to Coldplay basically made playlists that contain some kind of climate message and yeah do go and check out this playlist and Client Earth fantastic organisation really really worthwhile work powerful stuff like planet changing stuff that they do so um, do go and have a look at that on all of your social media playlists for earth Greg, I'm giggling because that was the Coldplay reference. <laughs> the oh, weekly that was Coldplay the Coldplay reference. <laughs> it's like we we have Easter eggs in this podcast, but really unsubtle <laughs> ones. We just we just basically park a Coldplay reference somewhere <laughs> into the podcast. It was subtle that one. Yeah, it was. It was, wasn't it? It's like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, we managed to do it. Um, will there ever be an episode of Sounds Like Plan that doesn't mention Coldplay? I'm not sure they will, but um, yeah, <laughs> we'll try. Um, but yeah, I think. I mean. The only thing left to say is um, this is a huge week for music and climate action. Do get involved with all of the stuff that we have mentioned on this week's podcast. But thank you to you, Faye. Thank you to Kiara, our guest on this time's podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening and see you soon. Thanks for streaming this episode of Sounds Like a Plan. It was hosted by Faye Milton and myself, Greg Cochran. We are at Faye Milton and at Greg Cochran on Twitter. Emma Snook was our editor for this episode. The co-production and artwork is by Stuart Stubbs and the music is by lightandthunder.com. This podcast is a New Allotment production and there's more about them at newallotment.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.